if you haven't thought enough about your value proposition to the consumer, you know, I talked to one brand recently who's working on like a very expensive version of a household like snack product. And instead of thinking about how that might not be a reasonable value proposition, the founder is looking for places where people might just be willing to spend more money. And I was trying to encourage her to really reconsider, you know, is there actually a market for a very expensive version of something that generally is not expensive? Your idea might be great. Your product might be wonderful. But if there isn't enough people who are that excited about it, you might run into challenges. As humans, we connect with one another through story. Since the beginning of time, stories is what brings people together. Stories is also what attracts consumers to brands. Knowing what story to tell and how to tell it is not easy at the beginning. It takes asking customers questions, testing, and retesting to craft the story that connects consumers with your brand. Welcome to How to Market Your D2C Brand, a show where we interview founders and marketers in the D2C space to learn about how they've grown their brands and current best practices in marketing. This show is brought to you by Goodo Studios, a photo and video creation studio that works with consumer brands to make content that converts viewers into customers. I'm your host, Matthew Gutozzi. Today's guest is Aaron Fasano, the co-founder of the Starry Side Company, VP of Strategy and Innovation at Core Foods, as well as the managing editor of Startup CBG. Aaron has worked in the food and beverage space for many years, helping companies craft their brand story. I wanted to start our interview by understanding how important the brand story is at the beginning of a company launching. I think it's really important. Um, one thing I think is pretty interesting in the CPG category where I spend most of my where I've spent most of my career is particularly with new startups, what you really find is a lot of times the story sort of comes naturally to the founder. It's either, you know, I developed a gluten-free bread because I'm a, I am have celiac, or my daughter um, can't have sugar because she's diabetic, so I invented this product. So, so a lot of that really comes naturally, um, particularly in, in food and beverage brands. And I think it really helps solidify both your story to financing, also your story to the consumer, and your story to any retailer you might be trying to to get into to kind of have that that little quick story really just helps become your filter for how you manage your whole business. How do you help brands kind of craft this story from kind of this more raw emotion? I had a problem, I found a solution. How do you help people or guide them through like a framework to kind of create this story where people can really feel compelled by it as, as a consumer? There's a lot of different sort of creativity tools that I like to draw on as I start talking to a founder who wants to really hone in on their story. And I find it really helps after the founder sort of like developed the product and they have their reason why, like once that sort of stage is done and now it's really time to talk to consumers more directly about why my brand, why, you know, why Aaron's gluten-free bread is better than something else. Um, and it really comes down to like the basics of marketing strategy, which really start with, um, you know, there's so many marketing acronyms, but STP, segmentation, targeting, and positioning, and really thinking through what consumer target are you actually trying to reach and what do they value? And how does your brand kind of align to that? And then I like to do a lot of like word association, like to name my company and build the, um, build the positioning that we built. We actually didn't take a founder-based story. So we talked a lot about what we wanted our brand to mean and what we value. 
And through those conversations, we really landed on Starry Side Company. It's really a brand founded in creativity. And then we came up with lots of words and phrases that we felt communicated that. So take a walk on the starry side and, and how that's different than, you know, being on the, looking on the bright side. And, and so we, we started creating just juxtapositions using like phrasing and words that consumers would already be familiar with, but then sort of structured them backwards into our value proposition, you know, and then from there we do our sort of formal positioning. Uh, we write like a formal positioning mostly. So you again, have that just filter where all of your, all of your decisions can flow through, whether it's a new product or a retailer you might want to launch into does that retailer fit with your brand's value and position um, and what you're trying to do? So it's, um, I think, really helpful once you're kind of sure about what you're making to start doing some of that work as well. Aaron mentioned having a founder story versus a story that is based around the brand and not the founder. I wanted to know how to think about which route to take as a brand when you're just starting out. Yeah, I think what I find um, in talking, I talk to a lot of founders through my role at Startup CPG, and I think um, the commonality I find is that brands that tend to start with a sort of founder-driven story um, or even like naming, you know, Justin's is sort of the classic example, you sort of build your position backwards into your brand. So now everybody knows Justin's means natural, healthy nut butters. And so you, you, can, you can still kind of build that same type of um, association. Um, I would argue it's probably a little bit harder, um, you know, to to draw an association to like a person's name versus potentially, you know, some sort of made up word or, or other more trademarkable um, type of name. Um, so I think, you know, when you're when you're starting your brand, if you kind of, if you know what you want those values to be, there's a lot of good reason to, you know, try to come up with a with a brand name that, you know, is ownable, trademarkable, unique. Um, but there's certainly nothing wrong with naming naming your company after yourself and and building into that as well. There's you know a bajillion Elizabeths is, an, is another example. A purely Elizabeth, excuse me, is a, is a good example of um, using a founder rooted story, her name, but then also the addition of the word purely really um, tells you kind of all you need to know, right? It's going to be pure, healthy, natural. So I think there's there's certainly a lot of ways to go, and it really comes down to you know what resonates with you as the founder and the values, you know, of your, of your brand. So as you're starting your company and as the, the audience is growing, I think one of the things that's, that's hard to navigate is what's the brand story as that audience is growing and how do we continue to kind of rephrase things, connect with customers, uh, and, and, and honestly just continue to build, um, more of a larger audience. You start to, that, that niche, um, person that you're, you're starting with, um, tends to grow. So I'm, I'm wondering as you, as your audience grows, how do you continue to think about brand and, and building your brand story? Maybe there's a framework or things that you continue to ask yourself as this, you know, company is growing and trying to reach a, a greater audience. Yeah, I think it's really important to listen to your consumers. You know, it's sort of the first rule of CPG marketing is know your consumer. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to know to know her. Uh, more, more often than not, it's it's a female. Um, you know, you can like make sure you're listening on social. Um, you know, do all, there's all different kinds of research you can do to make sure you're keeping in contact with them. But one of the things I like to do, and in, in my day job at Sagely Naturals, I run the marketing for them. Um, we have our Sagely Insiders. So this is a group of only about a hundred consumers. 
and we um, who've opted in to be basically our sounding board. And we involve them in almost every marketing and product development decision we're making. We're asking them what they're interested in, what they're what they're listening. We, we ask them what they're listening to, what TV shows we, they watch so we can get to know them better. And then as we're developing new products, we're asking them, how do they currently use our products? What don't they like? What wishes, wants, and desires do they have about what we currently make? And how can we inform that, like the next products we make with what they're interested in? Um, and I think it's it's a really helpful way. Um, Kerrigan, our, our founder, she felt very strongly that it was so important to stay um, stay close with your consumers. And I just think it was such a, it's such a great model that I actually borrowed it. So at, my, at the startup I'm working on with my co-founder, we have our star squad, same idea. We're asking them what flavors they like, um, getting feedback on packaging, um, you know, sense checking a price change we might want to make. So we're really, um, I, I think it's a really valuable way, particularly for brands that start online, like you have you have your customer's data. And then as you get bigger, you can still ask them the same types of questions. You know, where do you shop for groceries? And then when you go to a retailer to make a presentation, you can say, my customer told me she shops here. And so it makes a nice data point that you can then bring forward to help grow your business. I'd love to hear kind of best practices um, with how you've actually operated that group um, as, you know, it's probably helped and helped grow the brand. Um, so I'm curious how you continue to make sure that it's still valuable of a group, even expanding it, things like that. One of the things that we like to do is ask the same questions kind of over and over um, and not in a like annoying way, but, you know, we'll we'll regularly check in on the same types of topics that are important to us. So then we can see how the consumer changes over time as well. You know, consumers are notoriously fickle, right? So we we like to make sure that we're still delivering a product that was relevant two years ago. Let's make sure, I mean, you can see it in your sales data as well, but you can get different feedback as the consumer uses it more. Um, so I think, you know, setting sort of a baseline of, um, you know, questions that you always kind of want to ask, like we often ask, what does the brand name Sagely Naturals mean to you? And we give them like an open field to just type in whatever they want. Then I just use like a word cloud generator on like, you know, you can find them online and you can see what words pop. Um, and we recently just compared um, this year versus five years ago. And you can really see the impact our brand has made in our category, right? So five years ago, Sagely was brand new. Um, people did associate it with words like natural and, and organic, but now we can see there is a strong correlation to CBD. It's a CBD based um, product line that we have. And so you can really see like the change, which is really encouraging um, and also gives us some signals as to what messaging people already believe about our brand so that we can then build on it and reinforce that with people who are potentially less familiar with it. If a company wanted to do something similar to this, how are you guys um, pulling data from these customers? Are you guys doing like a Google form? Like, uh, let's get technical. Like, what are you guys sending out? Um, or are you guys doing calls with them? How does it work in terms of building out this program for people? We effectively run it through Google Forms. Um, I rate the surveys myself. Uh, you know, when I worked in big corporate marketing, I ran a lot of surveys through, like I was exposed to a lot of survey writing that, um, you know, more professional, like people would write. So I have a good, kind of a good sense of it just from having done it so much. Um, you know, there's limitations to Google Forms, which is a little bit annoying. Like there's certain types of questions that are more difficult to get, you know, answers from um, just because of the limitations of Google Forms itself. Like a good example is if I ask someone like basically a screen out question. So if I don't want to talk to people who, let's say, have purple hair 
I can't say, do you have purple hair if you're no, like I can't kick you out of the survey in the same way that you could using a more um, advanced tool. That's, that's really the core issue, frankly, with Google Forms. But um, given that we're talking to our insiders, we generally want to hear from them no matter what. And I can, once you export the file, you can kind of clean up, you can clean up the data to, to get the answers you want. Um, and yeah, we, we publish it through, we, we sort of segment them to, the, to their own email list in Klaviyo, and then we incentivize them. So it's usually an opportunity to win, like maybe our collection of Rewind and Renew, like our face care line or, you know, whatever. Um, and depending on the topic, I'll try to tie the product that we offer um, with whatever the topic is. So if we're talking about face care, I'll offer them the face care product. Um, I've also um, used our insiders for um, focus groups. So um, one of the things, you know, you're always working on is new product development. Um, and we had, I wrote like 10 product concept statements and um, wanted to get some more like, um, you know, qualitative feedback from consumers. So I just emailed, basically I, I pulled the list to find, you know, a good mix of women and men, their ages. Um, we had, we already had asked them historically where they shop for groceries. So I picked, you know, appropriately mixed um, retailers. And then I just emailed them and I said, hey, would you mind spending an hour with me and a, and a handful of other Sagely shoppers and talk to me about new products? So we did a little bit of warm up. You know, we did it all on Zoom, um, or not even Zoom, actually, I use Google Hangouts, and they have that fun feature where you can use a whiteboard. Yep. So I sent, I, I gave everyone the, um, the concepts in the, um, in the little meeting, in the Hangout, and then I had them, like, mark it up, like, circle the things you like, cross out the things you don't like, rank it one, two, three, four, five on, you know, interest and intent. So it was, like, a nice way to conduct a focus group basically was free because these people were kind enough to give us their time because they just loved the brand so much. We got a ton of valuable feedback. It really drove a lot of the decisions we made about how we filled our pipeline really for the next couple of years. When you understand your customers well, you know more than just what items they like to buy from you. You can know their buying habits and where they like to shop. I wanted to know how Aaron thinks about developing a new channel for sales and jumping into retailers. Yeah, that's one of, I think, um, the biggest challenges is just being careful with your selection. So, you know, um, it costs a lot of money to enter retail um, because, you know, you've got to give up some of your margin to the retailer, right? So there's a whole extra person who, um, who needs to make money and margin off of the product. Um, and then you have to ensure that you turn the product off the shelf. So a lot of the same way that in a, in a strict D2C business, you want to you know, deliver the velocity out of your own um, website. Sort of the same is true at brick and mortar, except you're also kind of have to keep up with all the other brands. Um, so I, I always ask um, brands to think about um, who are, like if you could pick one retailer who's like your gold standard Mecca, like where would you want to be sold? And let's talk about why. And then let's build a list of other retailers who maybe you're not familiar with. Maybe you live in California and you don't know what Wegmans is or you don't know what Publix is, for example. Let's build a list of brands, of, of retail brands that you think are a good fit for your brand. And then let's start talking about how to build a story. Because that, that especially early on, that retailer brand match matters a lot. Because they're going to, as you noted, they're taking a risk, particularly if you're new, um, you know, new to brick and mortar. Um, and they have to have this, the right kind of resources to support you. Is it, is it a retailer where people go and they look for new stuff like Whole Foods or is, is your brand, you know, 
a brand that's maybe just a, a better for you type of product that um, maybe is more appropriate for the drug channel. Like our products are really topical pain products and those have the highest penetration in drug channels. So for Sagely, it made a lot more sense to really focus on big national drug chains um, and, and natural and the natural channel as well, where we know there's a high penetration of CBD products. So it really helps to think about what your product is and where how that match might work. Then you have to set about the difficult work of actually figuring out what category it would be, who the buyer would be, and what sort of third parties you need to engage to help you get to that place. A lot of times you're going to need a distributor like a Keiki or a UNFI. Um, you may need to engage with a broker to even get a meeting. So there's a lot of like steps. Um, the one thing I always encourage people to think about too is it takes a long time to get into retail. So like from the time you get a meeting with a retailer, it's likely going to be a whole year before they're even changing their shelf set. Sometimes the retailers touch the, same, the set two times a year, but a lot of times there's just a really long lead time. So the more information you have about when those decisions are happening, the better you can plan. As companies are jumping into retailers, what are some of like the biggest challenges brands face when they're going into these brick and mortars, going into these retailers? And what how would we prevent some of these challenges or uh, these things that make it make it hard um, as you know brands are expanding outside of D to C and going into to retailers and brick and mortar? There's kind of a, a lot of challenges, so I'll maybe start with the marketing related challenges. Um, and the most the biggest one is delivering velocity. Um, that is probably other than bringing revenue through the doors of the retailer keeping up your the velocity requirements, like turning it off the shelf, getting a customer to the shelf, and then to pick your product is going to be the most critical way to find success for your brand, but also to stay on the shelf at the retailer. So they, every time they take in a new brand, there's usually some other brand that lost their shelf position. And so there's a lot of tactics that are available, just like in a D2C business. Um, and there, there are like, you know, a million companies that'll help you help you turn that turn your product off the shelf. I always find it really helps once you're in the retailer to ask the retailer what programs they like. A lot of them sell programs that you can buy um, that will that will also help. Um, there's a wide range of efficiency. If you can get yourself on a display, that's definitely going to be your most efficient tool. Um, but there's a lot of sort of marketing suppliers that also can help um, deliver velocity. Um, Packaging is going to be a really key component to, to delivering a strong velocity. You know, you want it to be appropriate for the category, appealing to the consumer. And that'll be part of your selling story that you present to the retailer. You know, not only have I asked my insiders where they shop and, hey, retailer, they shop here, but they also love my label. This is the feedback that I've gotten from consumers on my package. Hey, I've also taken the liberty of walking into one of your stores and I put my product on your shelf and here's a picture of how beautiful it looks on your shelf. So there's a lot of ways that you can sort of um, use your D2C business and, and knowledge to help um, help the retailers get excited. Um, outside of marketing, um, it's a very cash intensive, um, it's very cash intensive to get into retail. You have to buy a lot of inventory to ensure that you don't, um, you know, miss any shipments, um, which generally you will get fined for. Um, if you don't deliver um, a PO on time and in full, most retailers do fine you for that. So it is it is sort of a big decision. And one of the reasons why I really encourage brands who are just starting to really identify those few retailers who they think are a great match, 
who they think will really partner with them. Cause then maybe if you, maybe if you're a little bit late on a PO, maybe you, maybe you won't get the fine, you know, if, if it's sort of a, a retailer who's, who's really excited about the innovation that you're bringing to the category. Retailers are taking a risk on brands when they put them on the shelves. To succeed in retailers, you need to move product off the shelf. I wanted to know how brands can market themselves in these new channels to their customers and how to succeed in retail. A lot of brands actually get a little bit shy about telling their T2C customers that they're available at brick and mortar because they'd prefer them to shop on their own website. Um, but I'm not very shy about that because I do think there is a reason to merchandise back to the retailer how much support um, you know, you're you're bringing to the to their doors. Um, a brand that does a really great job of this is Poppy Lou. Um, they're a lemonade brand. Um, and she, the founder takes, she'll go to the store. Like she, I think she just launched um, in like stop and shop out East. She'll go to the store with her kids, take a picture of them pulling the product off the shelf and throw it on her own Instagram. She'll put it on her LinkedIn. I always think those are really like fun little touches. They, they probably don't do a whole lot for scaled awareness, but they're fun little touches that help the retailer feel supported. And then you can tell, you know, those are your brand loyalists. Anybody who follows you on Instagram, right? They, they probably care a lot about your brand. So maybe they'll find you. Um, and then as you kind of push out of those super loyal people, um, I'm a big fan of, of like leveraging your store locators on your website. So you can still use tra traditional digital tactics to still communicate. Um, there's also, you know, you can build rich media units that include store locators in them. So there's a lot of ways to kind of drive people to any brick and mortar, um, and then really once you get enough scaled reach and you're sort of in more ACV and you can kind of, you know, you've, you've reached a couple of national retailers, then you can start looking at even bigger, more awareness driving. Um, and consumers can find you however they want, particularly, you know, if they're, if you're also sold um, online. Um, one of the things I always like ask brands to think about when they're selecting their marketing tactics is what your competitors are doing. Um, I used to work on a brand called Veggie Craft Farms, and this was a gluten-free pasta brand that was typically shelved in a gluten-free pasta set, which was typically right next to the regular pasta set. And I would, um, you know, be asked by the organization to do big awareness driving activities and make big investments. And my point to the organization was often, look, Barilla is right next to me and like they are going to spend money. It's a high household penetration category, like every house in America has pasta in it. So what we actually need to do is get people, once they're there, like I don't need to spend that those big, huge dollars because once they're there, that's when I need to convert them at the shelf. So I'm going to do a coupon in Ibotta. I'm going to add a piece of POP to make sure, you know, at the shelf that consumers have an opportunity to learn about the brand. Um, I'm going to place media with the retailers to help people who are inside, let's say a Kroger, for example, make sure that they're aware that this product is available. So when they get to the store, they can check it out. So I think some of the category dynamics should also inform what kinds of decisions you're making for what type of investment is appropriate. What are some major kind of common issues brands have um, at the beginning and how could you prevent them or what should we think about when we're first starting out um, to help prevent some of these, you know, common issues um, that brands have when they start to scale? So I think one of the one of the most common issues early on is cash management, um, which is, you know, cash is sort of gold at the very beginning. You know, you have an established credit. Um, and the most important thing you're going to end up spending money on is your inventory. And so being able to accurately forecast how much you're going to sell so that you can basically buy like the minimum amount of inventory you need to keep cash free to do other things to help sell your product. Um, so that's 
that's just a really hard, it's a challenge that you'll face basically forever. Um, and it, and it's a lesson I think some brands learn the hard way. Um, and I think a lot of your questions about story actually do, um, do matter a lot in the early stages. You know, if you've, if you haven't thought enough about your value proposition to the consumer, you know, I talked to one brand recently who's working on like a very expensive version of a household like snack product. Um, and instead of, um, thinking about how that might not be a reasonable value proposition, the founder is looking for places where people might just be willing to spend more money. Um, like for example, wineries or, you know, places where maybe you have more limited assortment. And I was trying to encourage her to really reconsider, you know, is there actually a market for a very expensive version of something that generally is not expensive? Um, because if there's not, there might be a reason for you to, to maybe take a step back, work a little bit more on the product, get your costs down a little bit more um, so that you're not trying to sell something to no market. So I do think that there is a little bit of that, like your idea might be great. Your product might be wonderful, but if there isn't enough people who are that excited about it, um, you might run into challenges. Um, and you see that a little bit with some, some of the newer ingredients, you know, obviously I work in CBD um, and CBD and THC have sort of um, foggy requirements at best from the FDA. Um, and so, you know, you have to really under, you have to understand kind of what you're getting into so that you can adequately manage your cash. Um, and also, you know, build a, a pipeline of products that actually are scalable. Um, and so you have to, if you're in a, if you're in um, a category where you're using a, an ingredient that might be more regulated supplements, also a great example, um, you really have to be confident that there is a market there um, so that, you know, you're, you're spending your time and money on, on, a, on something that's actually going to have a meaningful scale when you're done. We've got a few quick fire questions. So the first one is, what is one tech company in the e-commerce space, you know, marketing tech that, you know, you've been a fan of lately that maybe, you know, has really helped you and the work that you have done? I landed on a company that I met actually through Startup CPG called QPilot. Um, and they're, they're basically a subscription engine that helps you manage a subscription business D2C. Um, and one of the things I liked about them is, is um, in talking and getting to know that company, they really are about trying to help you think through end to end, like how to have a successful subscription business. Because I think there is, um, particularly, I think it came up on like a Shark Take episode where one of the sharks made sort of made a comment that he didn't um, see a lot of value in, in subscription businesses. And I think a lot of D2C brands look at them as like easy money. And so I do think there is sort of a knack to building a program that actually meets a need, right? So if your consumer is let's say, um, let's say you sell multivitamins and your multivitamin um, comes in 30 day supply. Well, that makes a whole lot of sense to have a subscription business based on running out after 30 days. And so I really like the approach that QPilot takes um, when they engage with new brands, because they think they really take, make it, take an extra step to really help you think through how to actually be successful um, versus some of the others who I've met with that are really like, here's your plan, plug it into your Shopify and like you're done. What D2C brand, um, CBG brand, whatever, are you like loving right now? This one's always really easy for me to answer because it's, for me, liquid death. Um, I have just been a fan of them since I discovered the brand. They have leaned, so it's canned water. That's all it is, if you haven't heard of it. Um, and they lean so hard into their marketing, like um, their tagline is murder your thirst. It's like, 
a funny, like when you, when you see the packaging, it's like a skull <laughs> on it. Um, and they recently just made a horror movie and I just love how hard they've really leaned into their position. They're like, you know, they want it's death to plastic is sort of their other tagline. It's because it, it comes in an aluminum can. And I just think they've done such a great job of really staying true to that position. Um, you know, this product isn't for everyone. I think some brands really try hard to be some for everyone. And, and frankly, the sort of old adage goes, if you're trying to be for everyone, you're really for no one. And they've said, we want to be for people who are cutting edge. You know, they've got like motorcycle people on their Instagram. They'll feature um, fans who get their brand tattooed on them. Like, and they've really like fostered this community by just staying really laser focused on their position and this sort of strategy of murdering, murdering your thirst, which is just so funny to me. Like, it's just water, but they've somehow turned it into something people get really excited about. So I, I just love, I love what they're doing. I finish off the podcast with a segment called Open Mic. This is a chance for my guests to share anything that they would like. A lot of times I feel like people get stuck behind the industry that they're in, but we are all human and we have other interests outside of that. I was so this is a space for my guests like, what to say whatever they want to say. piece of advice. And, and I kind of went back actually to something I learned in my time at Dole. So when I worked at Dole, they ran their fruit cups business, their applesauce business, their frozen business. And our VP of marketing had sort of an old, um, sort of a saying, and it, he, he, it was sort of like three rules. It was know your consumer, know your product, and be entrepreneurial. And I really loved this like framework of thinking and kind of reminding myself like consumer first, always has to be consumer first. How can I improve my product, make it better for her? How can I make her more aware of it? Um, and, and sometimes I think you, you mentioned, you know, when you're first starting out, you might not really be sure. Maybe you don't have enough people buying your product to even, you know, have a little insider's list. Like, what do you do then? Ask anybody who will talk to you. I text my girlfriends all the time, pictures of our work in product, work in process product for Starry Side, just like getting their gut check opinions. I'll go stand at the grocery store in the section of the store where I want my product to be and like watch women shop the section with their kids and like ask them, like, I don't mind. How did, why did you choose that product today? What was interesting about it to you? Or like, I'll send my kids to the grocery store and I'll be like, you can pick anything you want from this section of the store and they'll pick something. And I'll be like, that's gross. Why did you pick that? And inevitably it's like, oh, my favorite color is pink or, you know, something I would have never thought of. So I just suggest, you know, use the resources available to you. Don't be shy. Um, you know, you might get asked to leave the grocery store if you spend too much time in there without buying something, but you know, it's, that's the worst that can happen. And then, you know, you can, you're just sort of building your, building your knowledge for, um, for how you can always you know, stay in touch with your consumer. This conversation with Aaron helped me understand how to craft a brand story, how to establish a great insiders group for market research, as well as best practices for getting into retailers. You can follow Aaron on LinkedIn, and there will be more information about Aaron's work linked down below in the show notes. Thank you, Aaron, for being on the show. If you like this show, drop a rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast listening app. And if you really love this show, please share this episode with a friend. We're also on YouTube, so you can watch the full video interview there. Thanks so much in advance, and we'll see you in the next episode.